The Midnight Disease is brought to you by The Turtle Coalition. Oh God, please help save the turtles. In the course of the 15 seconds it will take to read this underwriting spot, countless turtles will be flattened by speeding cars on the highways of America, needlessly neglected by inattentive fifth graders whose parents thought it would be cute to give them a low-maintenance pet, or ignorantly represented as lethargic buffoons in fly-fishing hats in a children's cartoon. The principal source of our species' current notoriety is a horrifying web video of one of our brethren confusedly attempting to mate with a shoe. It's rough out here, guys, and the Turtle Coalition needs you. Log on to turtlecoalition.org today to find out how you can help. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20, sticking with it, not deviating for once in my goddamn life. It's running through the Great River MP500NV, those big Jensen Transformers, kicking it into gear on a Friday afternoon in the universe, in the moon cabin, a little good company to take you into the weekend. Oh, yes. Have changed the name of the segment. Again, just insatiable I am, apparently, for title changes. But why have I changed the title? I've thought about this. I would like to tell you. First, as always, folks, you can reach the show at any time by emailing midnight at walt.fm. I would love to hear from you about anything at all. And... I would also like to offer a gentle reminder that little independent shows like The Midnight Disease rise and fall in part on reviews and ratings in Apple Podcasts. And so if you are newer to the show and you haven't left a rating or a review yet, it would be an excellent time to do that. And I thank you. All right, so why have I changed the title of the Friday episodes for the third time? It's because of this. So I came on to the Midnight Disease a few weeks ago and told you all about this story that I did for the podcast Sports Explains the World about baseball on the radio and that the title of that piece was Good Company and that the title of that piece was Good Company because... I was told in an interview by one of my subjects, a baseball broadcaster by the name of Andy Freed, that to be good company is, in fact, the mandate of the baseball broadcaster, that that is the job. Above all else, it's kind of the the broadcaster's Hippocratic Oath. Above all else, be good company. And there was something about when he said those words that just made my shoulders drop, just felt like something was falling into place, that I was understanding something really like a base note of my love of the medium of of spoken word. And ever since then, I've been trying to figure out what that is. And I, I, I did, in that piece for Sports Explains the World, I think figure out why that felt so true to me in a baseball context. But since then, I've been puzzling over 
why it feels like more than just a baseball broadcaster's creed, why it feels like words to live by, why it, why it feels like a mission statement for making things for people to listen to. And this is what I've come up with. You know, earlier this week, I, I took a trip down to visit my mom in Virginia. I, some of you will remember the ill-fated uh, under-the-blanket intro from this week's interview with Becky Granger. And as on the drive down, I was doing this super cool and not at all self-indulgent thing of listening to my own podcast. <laughs> not because I was like, wow, this podcast is so good, but because I had not, I've got a lot of episodes of The Midnight Disease out at this point, and it had been a minute since I kind of checked in with the older episodes and listened to them with the goal of evaluating how successful was I in terms of my on-mic presence. Like, what was I really accomplishing, if anything, in particular in the intro to the interview? Because the, the interview is is kind of its own thing, but the intro is the place where I feel like I am establishing myself as the presence, one of the, the, the main presence with whom you're going to spend the next hour or so. And the thing that felt sort of absent from a lot of those intros for me was a sense of what I'm going for when I sit down behind the mic. What message am I trying to deliver? And I don't use that phrase lightly. Um, I did an interview many years ago with uh, this woman named Rachel Flotard, who's a really awesome singer-songwriter. And this was for a different show, but um, she told this story about how when she was coming up as a musician she would be experiencing a crisis of confidence or faith about her viability uh, as a professional artist. And her father would say to her, but Rach, are you delivering the message? And that phrase just really stops me in my tracks because that's really all that matters. Are you delivering the message? Because forget how many people are listening to it. Forget whether you're getting paid to deliver it. Are you delivering the message? And in that Becky episode from earlier this week, you know, you heard me talk about this internal ping pong match I have with myself about, am I doing the thing or am I imitating the thing? And the key, of course, to not imitating the thing is that if you're delivering the message, the thing is just a vehicle for the message, right? So we're talking very jazzy today, but I feel like you guys are with it, right? So if you're delivering the message, you're not worried about what the envelope looks like. And I think I can, I can have a tendency sometimes, and when I was listening to those old intros, to, to, I can hear myself thinking about what the envelope looks like. And that, critically, it does not happen when I am in an interview with somebody, because then it's, the space is shared. You know what I mean? Then I'm, there's another person there. I'm trying to be present for that dynamic. I have other things to think about than the container and the shape of just my voice in the ether delivering some kind of presence to you, wherever you are, wherever you're hearing this. And I guess that kind of led me to think about the most formative moments for me of wanting to hear a voice or voices in the ether delivering something to me. 
And I had this memory that I think about a lot when I, I think about my love of podcasting. And the memory is that I used to take these long bus trips to visit my ex-girlfriend when she was in grad school. I was still living here in New York. She was living about nine hours away. And so in order to go visit her, I would have to get on this bus for nine hours. I didn't have a car, couldn't get there by train. And these bus trips were tough. There were a lot of long, dark nights on those buses. And that was because our relationship had been slipping away from us or slipping out from underneath us. Uh, You know that that Death Cab for Cutie song, uh, The Ice Was Getting Thinner Under You and Under Me? That's what was happening. But we were trying to skate. So I would sit on the bus and I would know that I was riding towards a tough weekend of misunderstandings, of regrets, of perceived betrayals, and that I was also then looking at another long nine-hour bus ride back where I would be processing whatever horrors awaited me. And I'm not trying to say it was worse for me than it was for her, of course. I, I don't think she enjoyed these visits any more than I did, but I can only speak to my own experience. You get it. <sighs> anyway, I still looked forward to these bus trips, and that is because I had my favorite podcast to get me there. I would sit on the bus, I would lean my head against the window, and I would listen to what is still my favorite podcast of all time, TBTL, Too Beautiful to Live, still running today. It's a little different today than it was back then, but still going. And what I liked, nay, loved about TBTL is that when I listened to it, I felt like myself. I felt like I was still myself in some way, even though I knew that I was going towards a situation where I increasingly did not feel like I could be myself or like myself was enough. When I listened to TBTL, I felt like these guys are talking to me. And that's because they know that that I get it. (laughs) And I do get it. I, I get it so deeply. And it's tempting for me at this moment to tell you what kind of show TBTL was. Even though when I do, I feel like some of you are going to be like, what? (laughs) But TBTL was honestly very simple. It was three friends, a host and and a couple of co-hosts. The show was divided into a bunch of different segments. And it was mostly just the three of them telling stories to each other. The one, the segment that comes to mind always first for me is at the beginning of the show, Luke, the host, would say to the co-host, Jen, what'd you do yesterday afternoon? And Jen told this story about taking a walk around a lake and bringing some Pinot Grigio with her and having too much of it and having to sit down and put her head between her hands partway around the lake and her husband having to finish walking the dog without her and then come back and get her, and like this whole walk that that went off the rails. Not the most high-stakes story. I don't even remember how it ends. But it, it was just so relatable, so connective. It was, it was just this idea that these people were out there living their lives and, and having a kind of wry take on it. 
and, and the idea that they were doing their best. I think this is what it is, that they were doing their best and sometimes it wasn't enough was worth talking about. Well, I think I just figured it out. <laughs> I think I just figured out what I loved, loved about that show. It was, yeah, it was that. It was that. And they had other segments, too, that were, like, a little bit more constructed. Like, this thing called Web Gems, which was, like, they would tell each other about cool things they saw on the internet. But it was always really informed by that that other thing. And the shows were an hour and a half long. So you really you could really sit with them for a while. And it was good company. And it was good company in a moment where I really needed some good company. Because otherwise I wasn't going to be good company for myself. And I was going towards a situation where I wasn't going to be good company to my ex. And we weren't going to be good company for each other. And, and, and I think this is the thing that that phrase gave a name to, good company, when Andy Freed said it to me. This idea that good company is not a trivial thing, that that companionship can make the world make sense, especially at, at, at times when there are things going on that it's hard to make sense of. That is such a, a, an extraordinary thing to be able to deliver to somebody. Good company. And so I, I think that what I have realized is that that is what I'm trying to do. Anytime I make a podcast is to be good company. And I think there are other people who make podcasts who are trying to inform or who are trying to tell a particular story that reveals some kind of truth. And I, I have made those kinds of podcasts and I, I love them. But the thing that is underneath all of that and the thing that I think sometimes impairs me from successfully delivering information in a manageable way or in a comprehensible way or from telling a story in a propulsive way is because what I really want is the rap session. I just, like when I interview people for long-form investigative shows, I do these interviews that go on for like four hours because the person brings something up like, you know, we're there to talk about this woman's relationship with her grandfather whose body went missing. And I'm notionally there to get clues and information about what became of the body. But all of a sudden, we're talking about how he loved baseball and that he would watch baseball or listen to baseball on the radio and that he had these little catchphrases like, this guy's full of shit. And that she's just so hung up on these catchphrases. And then she ends up remembering in the course of the, this conversation that she actually has this voicemail tape. And it, it's the last words he ever said to her. And, and wouldn't I like to hear it, to hear what's on this tape? And oh, oh my God, of course, I would love to hear that. And I'm able to participate in that dynamic because I'm able to, to say to her that I used to listen to baseball on the radio with my dad. And, and we're talking about how profound that is. And none of that tape is going to go into the investigative audio documentary that we have to make because it's not propulsive. It's reflective. It's, it's a rap session. It's a hang. It's the two of us learning more about each other and learning things about us that make us feel closer than we were when we started the conversation. And I love that feeling so much. And it's not, there is not a narrative to it. It is not useful as narrative, but it is so meaningful as good company. 
And I would always come away from interviews like that and, and think like, I, I just want that to be the show. <laughs> I, I don't want to crack the case. I just want to have time well spent with people and figure out a way to share it where listening to that becomes time well spent for other people. And that sounds so wishy-washy and like it's not a craft, but there, there is actually an, an art to that. And I think part of the art of that is opening yourself up to it as a valuable thing and then figuring out what the right amount, just the right amount of sculpting of that is to not get in the way of the exchange and connection that, that's happening in the conversation and not impose like a narrative on top of it and musical scoring and all these things. Anyway, I don't know that I have always been so successful at long-form narrative because I'm craving the companionship. And the other thing that happens is I'm sitting in one of those interviews and I realize that we're having a rap session right now. We're not getting any information that's leading to the cracking of the case. I'm not getting the clues that I came there for as an investigator about where the jewels are buried. But we're really really having a session about how ridiculous grandmothers can be about their tea sets and the particularity of that and it and how it just says so much about who they are and it's making me think about my grandmother and it's making this person think about their grandmother and isn't that valuable in and of itself who cares if we ever find where the jewels are 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 buried this person that i'm talking to doesn't really want to talk about it and and i don't want to force them to talk about it but if you think of yourself as a journalist, you have failed at your job if you don't get that information. And getting into a rap session that makes the other person feel comfortable is a ploy to get them to talk about the information with you. And I don't want it to be a ploy. I just, I want the session to be the thing. I want to be good company and I want to deliver good company. And so I think that's what these Friday episodes should be called. Because in a weird way, I'm having conversations on Wednesdays with artists about their attempts to deliver their message so that I might more effectively deliver mine. And shouldn't the other episode that I make every week be an attempt to deliver that message more effectively as informed by the things I'm learning in those Wednesday conversations? So, hence the new title of these Friday episodes. Good company. So for good company today, in the spirit of the season and in the spirit of what I was just talking about, I wanted to play you this comedy sketch that my friend Alan Smith and I wrote a few years ago. And there, there's a bit of a editorial reason for this, which is that this comedy sketch is written in the style of the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, which you might be familiar with, and which has been a profound source of good company to me for years. And I, Welcome to Night Vale is on my mind because next week on The Midnight Disease, we have an interview with Jeffrey Craner, who is one of the creators of Welcome to Night Vale. So get excited about that. And I had sort of forgotten that Alan and I made this. And the, the reason it's connected to what we were talking about in the first part of this episode is that we, what we did, made is the sketch 
is a baseball broadcast in the style of Welcome to Night Vale. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Welcome to Night Vale is a fictional broadcast from a community radio station somewhere in the desert out west where bizarre and mysterious happenings are taking place all the time. And so Alan and I thought, wouldn't it be funny to have two baseball broadcasters dealing with the unexplainable and the uncanny as they also attempt to navigate the on-field happenings of a baseball game. And this was also a very exciting project for me as a sound designer because, you know, you imitate the people you admire to try to figure out what makes them such good company. And so what I was doing in this sketch, which is called Welcome to Night Baseball, is I was trying to place the music cues exactly the way they place the music cues in Welcome to Night Vale. And Alan and I tried to write the narration and deliver the narration in a tone that was very similar to what they do on Welcome to Night Vale to try to see if we could replicate that that feeling that Welcome to Night Vale creates. You know, people talk about Twin Peaks as being a vibe, <laughs> like that Twin Peaks feeling. Welcome to Night Vale is very similar. We were trying to to figure out what are the building blocks, like what are the what are the pieces of that feeling, and and could we could we make our own version of it in this? And I want to share it with you because even if you don't like baseball at all, and even if you've never heard Welcome to Night Vale, I still think we made this odd little artifact that is totally comprehensible, even if you've never heard a baseball game on the radio or an episode of Welcome to Night Vale. But it is also a, about this thing that that I was talking about in the at the beginning of this episode. It's about this idea that life is unfolding and we are trying to process it and make sense of it, even though it does not make any sense and it's completely overwhelming. And we know that the forces all around us are too powerful <laughs> for us to have any hope of actually comprehending the riddle that we live in. But we are trying our best. And that is something that I will talk about in much greater detail next week with Jeffrey Craner, the co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale. And right now, I welcome you to Night Baseball on WALT. A flag ripples in the Baltimore breeze. In the lobby of the downtown Hilton, a single cosmopolitan slips through a woman's fingers and shatters on the floor. Behind a nondescript window in a nondescript brick warehouse, Peter Angelos presses a glowing red button. Welcome to Night Baseball. Welcome back, sports fans. August Magnolia here, along with Mike Bordick. And for those of you just joining us, the Orioles are currently trailing 7 to nothing, as Falcon Ridge White Stocking starter Eli Entwistle is currently throwing what can best be described as an immaculate game. He has recorded 12 consecutive outs without throwing a single pitch, relying instead on his personal overwhelming sense of ennui and despair, which he channels into a fearsome glower. 
each Oriole's batter has stood in, only to feel an unspeakable weight, a frustration with his family, a deep-seated resentment for his omission from the 2014 Orioles' pets calendar, and a fear of something that cannot be quite defined. They then, to a man, have sighed and returned to the dugout, fighting back tears. There has also been a strange development above Oriole Park at Camden Yards, as, for the last three innings, a giant vortex of yellow light and haunting, yet undeniably beautiful music has been gathering until it obscures much of the night sky and the Hilton Hotel. Well, and Entwistle really has his stare working tonight. It's a real fine outing made even more remarkable by the fact that he came into tonight's game with an 0-6 record and an ERA over 7 to go along with a series of unexplained abrasions and burns along his chest and shoulders. By the way, August, you mentioned the Orioles' 2014 Pets calendar. That's available in the Orioles' gift shop or online at www.orioles.com shop. Thank you, Mike Bordick for that important reminder. However, it will be difficult for our fans to access that website, as it is currently filled with blood. The principal damage from the White Stockings offense came in the bottom of the third when cleanup hitter Thurston Gompers laced a double back up the middle that clove Jamal Weeks into two separate halves and also allowed two runs to score. Miraculously, the two halves of Jamile Weeks have reformed into two second basemen, both of whom still rate negatively in the ultimate zone rating metric, as defined by Fangraphs.com. On Gompers has really been on a tear lately, hitting over 340 in road games, racking up 12 RBI and three fatalities on this road trip alone. And you know... Fangraphs is a great website, but I've never been an advanced metrics kind of a guy. Weeks has been just fantastic since joining the team, and his clubhouse presence has been a welcome distraction from the unexplained but menacing hooded figures who've replaced the entire training staff. He's got to be considered one of the best second basemen in the major leagues today. Two of the best second basemen, Mike Bordick. Meanwhile, Orioles starter Wei-Yin Chen has not fared nearly as well as Entwistle. Thus far, he's given up seven runs on nine hits and been forced to sign a contract consigning his as-yet-unborn child to Falcon Ridge manager Valkron the Omnipotent. After escaping a bases-loaded jam in the fourth inning, Chen was last seen wading slowly into the inner harbor wringing his hands and moaning. Tommy Hunter, however, pitched a scoreless fifth and will take the mound again for the Orioles facing the bottom of the White Stockings order. He'll go against shortstop Bucky Thurston, right fielder Lyndon LaRouche, the younger brother of Adam and Andy, such a great baseball family there, and their ninth place hitter, who has no name but is rather a formless amalgamation of Hunter's deepest fears and insecurities. Thurston stands in against Hunter, brandishing a glowing purple bat. The first pitch from Hunter is a fastball on the outside corner for strike one. Thurston looks displeased. He steps out of the box and has whispered something into the barrel of his bat. 
Yeah, it's very strange. Many of these Falcon Ridge batters will do that between pitches. It kind of reminds you of that movie Lost in Translation. Did you see that one, August? I've never seen a movie. Oh. Ball one to Thurston as Hunter's breaking ball comes up just a bit short. As many Orioles fans know, Tommy got married this offseason. His bride is in attendance for tonight's game. Television cameras captured her between innings, removing a piece of crab cake from between her glistening fangs. And there's another strike on the outside corner. Thurston steps out of the box again, and now he's raised the bat above his head, and he's opened his mouth to the heavens, emitting some kind of incantation. A column of light has appeared in the swirling dusk, descending slowly toward his bat. He raises the bat to meet the verdant plume descending from the vortex. All hail the bat! All cower before the light! And strike three called as Hunter dots the inside part of the plate with a changeup. It appears that Thurston neglected to call timeout before stepping out of the box to begin his incantation. And uh, that is four straight set down by Tommy Hunter. LaRoche stands in now, hoping to get something started here for the white stockings. LaRoche is wearing his trademark battling helmet, which not only protects his head, but also conceals his entire face, which no one in the national media has ever seen. And now the vortex that swirls above us seems to have responded to Thurston's strikeout as long purple tendrils have begun to creep down into the third deck of Orioles Park. You know, LaRoche's helmet reminds me of that special knee guard that Kevin Euclid has to wear. I tell you, no one gets hit quite as often as Euk. Euclid is, of course, playing this season in Japan, where he is rumored to be conspiring with the government on some sort of climate control device. Hunter misses outside with the curveball, and now the tendrils have begun snatching fans in section 336 at random and flinging them out of sight as the strange yet sweet, sweet music grows ever louder. 1-0 on the Roche. And as Wei-Yin Chen learned all too painfully, you just can't get behind these White Stockings hitters, even here at the bottom of the order. He also learned that physical pain is nothing compared to the horror of seeing one's progeny consigned to a lifetime of servitude. Of course, should Hunter and his bride ever successfully procreate, their offspring would be heir to the throne of Steve Pearsylvania, that ghoulish kingdom in the north where the men are strong but foolish. And LaRoche has turned on a 1-0 offering and drives it sharply to the left side of the infield. J.J. Hardy, as he has all game, simply turns and watches the ball skip by as a single tear rolls down his stubbled cheeks and the corpse of Nolan Reimold feels the ball and gets it back into the twin Jemiah Weeks's covering second base. So a runner on first with one away. That's Hunter's first real mistake of the evening. He left the fastball up and LaRoche just turned on it. Let's hope Tommy can bear down here and retire the side before the White Stockings increase their lead. That's unlikely. Because digging in now is a loose amalgamation of Tommy Hunter's fears and insecurities. 
The glistening, writhing mass of smoke and rapidly changing spectral images appears to all who behold it as the thing they fear most in this world. Now, clearly this matchup doesn't favor Hunter, but the scouting reports, which appear to be covered in a thin film of light blue slime, suggest that the loose amalgamation has a weakness for the cutter low and away, so if Tommy can successfully work that corner, he might just induce an inning-ending double play. It looks like that won't be happening, Mike Bordick, as Hunter has just collapsed to his knees. He's covering his ears, deafened by the sound of a blood-curdling scream that only he can hear. Orioles manager Buck Showalter is jogging out to the mound from the dugout, and it looks like we're going to have a pitching change. Meanwhile, the vortex spins on, and the purple sky tentacles are growing ever bolder. They've now claimed the majority of the fans above the SK out-of-town scoreboard, as well as Orioles right fielder Nick Markakis. And losing Hunter here is not a good development for the Orioles, who've had to rely on their bullpen so much throughout the entirety of this series and really all season long. It's times like this you wish the front office had been able to sign a couple of durable starting pitchers during the offseason, particularly now that we may never see Wei Yin Chen again. And this call to the bullpen is brought to you by National Bohemian Beer. Do you find that you can't remember why you wanted to get out of bed in the morning? Do you find yourself laying in the gray pre-dawn light, feeling as though your legs have been replaced with concrete? There are a list of things that need to be done today, but you can't remember why any of them are important. The car is due for a tune-up, but where would you need to go? There is no one expecting you, and the groceries you intended to purchase will only slowly decompose next to last week's supply. You told yourself you'd cook more this year, but who are you kidding? There's no one to eat with you, except the cat. You look over at your dresser. The cat is sitting on a pile of your dirty clothing, looking at you, his eyes casting a judgment that you've never seen there before. Could that be more than simply hunger? Could he be planning your demise? No, you tell yourself. That's crazy. He is only a cat. And yet, would anyone notice if he succeeded? How many weeks would it be before someone missed you? How many weeks of your body sitting in this very bed with your cat and this dresser and those piles of dirty clothes and the wall still blank where you intended to hang a photograph of that place in Ireland where you were last happy? National Bohemian. Oh boy, what a beer. Brian Mattis is on to take his warm-up tosses as wind levels on the field approach gale force proportions. And we'll be back to find out if he can get the Orioles out of this inning after these 15 seconds of mysterious noise conveying no clear message. Welcome back. The amalgamation of fears has lurched back into the box against Brian Mattis, 
who so far seems to possess more courage than his predecessors. Which is funny when you think about it, because anyone who's ever looked at Brian Mattis knows that he perpetually wears the expression of perpetual insecurity, made famous by the George Michael Bluth character on the television show Arrested Development. I've also never seen a television program. You know, that's just so funny to me, because... And Mike Bordick, former shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles, is the latest victim of the strange but powerful and compelling vortex that circles above us. I can see him now, screaming, as he is sucked into the sky by the ravenous tentacles, and Mattis is into his windup, and the first pitch to the loose amalgamation is a strike right down the heart of the plate. Fans, don't forget to text in your votes for tonight's player of the game. When making your selection, however, please do remember, none of the options are human or playing in this particular game. And also, we don't have a number to text to. So, simply whisper your selection into your tear-soaked pillow when night is at its darkest. And it's 1-0 on the loose amalgamation as Mattis toes the rubber. He rocks and delivers a... That'll do it for this installment of Good Company. Friends, thank you for listening, as always. If you have thoughts about anything you've heard on the show, drop me a line. Midnight at WALT.FM. And I will talk to you next week on Wednesday. Until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.